The Great Work Radio Program. The Great Work Radio and Blog are features of Jesse War's website and can be accessed at jessiewar.com. That's J E S S E W A U G H.com. We look forward to comments submitted to the blog and hope you enjoy today's program. Julian Vane and Nikki Weird are the authors of The Book of Baphomet and the proprietors of the blog of Baphomet.com. Together we examine the iconography of the famous 19th century drawing of Baphomet by the French mystic Eliphas Levy. Julian and Nikki then go into the ideological significance of the concept of the god who they state represents the crux of universal balance. Links to their books and blog can be found included in the listing for this episode of The Great Work and also in the new books section of the site. I start off by asking Julian and Nikki, what is the history of Baphomet? Uh, This is a term, a word that uh, is a a peculiar kind of echo that comes down to the modern age originating, as far as anyone can tell, with the Knights Templar and the trial uh, that that happened when the order was um, uh, destroyed. Uh, by Philip the Fair of France and the, uh, the then Pope. And the word Baphomet comes out in a few of the Templar trial records as being the name of the idol uh, or image that they were accused of worshipping or that they confessed to worshipping um, under torture. And then the word becomes this very interesting uh, term which goes in and out of play through the history of uh, Western occultism and emerges very vigorously towards the end of the 19th century with the work of Elifus Levi and then into Alistair Crowley and then into the modern period and is closely associated with the contemporary style of magic known as chaos magic. And does it, is it related at all to the name Muhammad? Um, some etymologists believe that that is so, although there is debate about this matter. I this personally. You, you, you don't believe it is, or you do? I do think it is, yeah. Oh, you do, okay. And then what about the, the name Sophia? Is it also related to that? I think there are, with, with a number of the, the, the possible etymologies, there's a suggestion that it means baptism of, of wisdom, and Sophia being uh, one of the icons associated with, with wisdom, then that's, 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 that's certainly sort of there in the mix. But what, what I think interests us uh, most about it is that this word becomes if you like, a sort of linguistic strange attractor that allows a whole collection of uh, mythologies and ideas to associate uh, towards it. So it, it, there are lots and lots of uh, you know, etymologies that are given. I agree with Nikki that probably the, the sort of the mishearing or the deliberate use of the, the, the notion that the Knights Templar were worshipping uh, Muhammad uh, is the most likely. 
and that that's the, the if you like the blasphemous sort of root of of the word but then as various people try and reclaim it they start to see it associated with things like wisdom or uh things like um uh the the unity of the sun and the moon which is you know where crowley has his numerology on the whole thing so there are a number of then if you like after the fact uh attempts to analyze where the word comes from Right. Um, so the the most common depiction is obviously the the Eliphas Levy nineteenth um, century uh, drawing of Baphomet. Um, does does that bear any relation at all? Do you think to uh, the proto Shiva seal um, that was discovered um, that dates back to um, the Mohenjo Daro Indus Valley civilization? Do you have you ever seen that? What I'm talking about? Oh yes, yeah. Yeah. Do you um, think there's any connection? I don't know if anybody would have seen that. I think it's possible that it's more of sort of just a strong iconographic sort of image of having a cross, cross-legged figure. Um, right. It's just a common form in which you represent. I think I think the the, the the suggestion that it's kind of maybe a, a kind of an archetypal image. I mean, there's only so many ways of you know representing a human figure, and the idea of the of uh, um, this image, which is both uh, about uh, balance or equipoise, and about above the uh, about the above and the below, uh, that that's a, you know if you if you want to symbolise that with a with a humanoid figure, there's only so many ways you can do that. Whether or not Levi had any kind of awareness of of, of that image or Shiva Nataraj or any of these things, they were probably uh, he was probably familiar with some of them, I would imagine. Yeah, given that the interchange between the different cultures going back hundreds, if not thousands of years, is quite considerable, then a meditation pose would have been familiar to occultists from all sorts of different walks of life and areas of the world, would be my take on that one. Yeah, and how does it, um, it balances as above, so below, so can you explain the different balances depicted in that specific Eliphas Levy picture, if not other pictures as well? The, because the image is, um, an attempt at representing, if you like, the, uh, the totality. What Bob P. Carroll in his work was the the, uh, the sum total of um, the the life force uh, of of the of the earth. Uh, although obviously his description is much later, he's referring to the the Levi image. So you have the scales of the fish, you have the the uh, uh, the, the feet of the goat, and the wings of an eagle, and so forth. So it's the idea of this being, if you like, uh, the both the axis mundi. So this is the you know the the seated uh, or dancing meditating figure, uh, and this is also the confluence of all these different um, forces within the universe within one single figure. And also, of course, the masculine and feminine. If you look at it, it's got breasts and also a phallus as well, and then the arms. One of them is female and one of them is male. Oh, are the arms uh, gendered? Yes. Are they? Which one is is what are they? They're dissolve and congeal, right? Uh, yes, I don't know which is which. Which is which? I would think the dissolve would be male and the congeal would be female. I guess you could cut it either way. I mean, in the sense that you know, because it's about the 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 the, the unity of opposites, it's um, uh, you know, there, there will be a number of ways of of analysing that in gendered terms. But I think that the figure goes. It, it's it, the interesting thing is that it's it's incorporating. Um, 
all an attempt at incorporating all possible forms and all possible genders and it shows the interpenetration of those things so whether or not the left horn is the feminine one and the right horn is the masculine one i think probably doesn't doesn't matter in any great detail uh now if we were to go through the different uh the different aspects of the elephant's levy drawing um basically for for an art historical analysis what let's start with the the top where he has this uh, pointing sort of, I guess it's phallic, um, like projection out of his head, and then there's it's it's th it has three sort of petals, and then it's uh, emitting a fire. What does that signify to you? The flame between the horns. Um, so the, the flame is a bit like um, in a, if it was used, using a modern iconography, I, I would guess that they would be using some kind of light bulb kind of scenario because it's a bit about the sort of the idea of realization and throwing light on ideas there's a lot of the um things that the baphomet iconograph sort of points at throughout the centuries is to do with realizing what reality is about which is why it has all this sort of like multi-layered things going on into one thing it's about that moment of realization when the light turns on and you realize i'm using that word quite deliberately um to real things mm. and it's about looking at direct experience as your form of gaining knowledge about the world rather than just looking at books wow so is it is it parallel with illumination is it a representation of that yeah okay and then uh the horns and the goat head obviously most people would find that ugly and i've and i've often wondered why he would have depicted that obviously the Knights Templar were accused of worshipping a goat's head, and I guess that has some sort of intrinsic meaning, but it, it's a bit off-putting, obviously. So what is it's, the significance of that? I mean, it's interesting if you look at the Knights Templar trials and the, 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 um, the records. In, in fact, the, uh, the icon of Baphomet is given as, as many different things, a, 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 a skull, a skull and a reliquary, a skull stuffed with grain, a skull with carbuncle eyes, and the skull is actually the most popular description and the Templars. So I think what um, Levi is doing there is he's trying to understand uh, Atu 15 of the tarot and he's trying to look at the, the character of the devil because it is the devil card of the tarot and he explicitly says that in, in his text. Um, but he's looking at the idea of uh, quite a, uh, an idea which I suppose surfaces in things like um, Tantrism, which is that uh, by that which we fall, that which also is the, um, the thing through which we rise. And that the, the scapegoat figure, in, particularly in the, the, the iconography, bear in mind he's, he's, he's reaching also deeply into kind of the Christian tradition here. He's looking at the idea of the, the scapegoat, the thing which is excluded being actually the most high and the most valuable. Oh, really? Yeah, and it's about the way that anim the animal nature of man is an important thing. I think that's a very strong part of it that comes across for me, which is why he's chosen a very animal, like the goat is the sort of the, the, the part which is very sort of instinct driven and raising that and joining it to human consciousness. Is that, is that also totemic in any way? I think, I think it's a little bit like, uh, like Mickey's saying with the, um, the, perhaps the animal heads of Egyptian deities, it's pointing at the idea of um, the, the animal nature of, uh, of, of um, humanity and our commonality with those creatures. It's totemic in the, I suppose in the sense that um, uh, 
there is a great link between human culture and our use of animals to you know, represent qualities in, 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 in ourselves. Uh-huh. The goat, I suppose, would be the totem of, uh, of lust and of willfulness. And, and uh, you know, goats are headstrong creatures, aren't they? They butt up against things. And so this is also pointing towards the radical nature of um, some of the ideas that Baphomet uh, represents. And also in Christianity, the goat particularly represents the willful individual rather than someone who's in a herd like the sheep are, which in their sort of view is a bad thing. Oh, but right, right, yeah. Necessarily uh, another frame of reference. And, and then uh, going back to uh, the scapegoat as the highest form, what is the scapegoat a highest form of? Um, that that uh, uh, in, in a, in a, um, there's a whole bunch of senses that it's the highest. Uh, look at the very fact that Christ is the scapegoat for the whole of humanity according to um, Christian mythology. Mm-hmm. So there's an example where the, the scapegoat, that which is excluded, that which is... Um, the, the, the dispossessed or the downtrodden or the has all or, the sins passed on to it exactly it. so it absorbs all the sins from the community and that's that's what Jesus does so it's also this uh, again um, uh, I guess in a sense sort of satanic but also in a in, in from, from the perspective of say um, a, a kind of maybe a more uh, if you like tantric kind of view of the thing it's the um, uh, it's it's very much that idea that um, the, the, the scapegoat itself, the sinful thing that carries, those, uh, carries that darkness uh, is the thing from which illumination springs. So really? How, like how a, is that? It's like the Jungian idea of kind of looking towards the shadow, looking towards the, you know, the, that which is hidden, that which is occluded, that which is occult, and that that's where an understanding of ourselves kind of grows from. So how, how would that relate to the memento mori? It's the same concept, right? I think so, actually. That's quite interesting. I've not thought about that kind of connection between the memento mori and the, the, the uh, earlier sort of uh, Baphomet iconography of the skull. Yeah, maybe there is an interesting connection to be drawn there, at least poetically. There are an awful lot of photographs I've seen recently on the internet depicting Baphomet, which mostly consist of nubile young women with a goat's skull placed in front of their face as a mask, interestingly. And, and the skull, the skull representing death would mean that you go into the darkness and then you reach some sort of, you create your own illumination, perhaps? Yeah, it's about seeing the bones of a matter. So the thing behind the, the sort of fleshly, um, temporary thing that you see, but it's about seeing the reality behind that and what, what lies beneath the surface appearance of things is also what the skull represents, as well as death and darkness. But it also represents that which is more permanent behind the temporary. A lot of cults have used skulls over the years because they're using it as an oracular device. When you look at something with two eyes and a mouth there and you're in a trance state, it's much easier to actually get messages from it. That's where a lot of the sort of using masks, skulls, severed heads, different things like that in, as important icons comes from. I'm not sure saying more about the Freemasonry aspect of it. I mean, I think that there's, there's certainly... Um Traced, traced in the, the, the book that we wrote, there's, quite a, there's a, a, a real link, I think, with Freemasonry, both in terms of the iconography and also in terms of some of the, um, the sort of the attitudinal process of uh, seeing, uh, looking, looking at the wor- world from the book of nature, looking at the sort of the underlying, rather like the skull, looking at the thing that's kind of below 
the realm of appearances. And I think the one of the interesting things I really like about the uh, Levi's Baphomet image is that it's it's almost like a sort of a, a, a kind of a, a statement of the Darwinian situation of you know here 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 we recognise that humanity is. Uh, is, is part of the biosphere in a broader sense, and certainly it, specifically that humanity is, uh, we are just another creature. And the skull also sort of, I think, does that symbolically because it pairs down what we are. You know, what are we? We are these collections of chemicals that ultimately resolve themselves into ossified bone. And it also points to the linkages between different species. If you look at the skull and also just skeletons, you can see that all mammals are basically the same body plan, which is not always so apparent when you actually just look at a creature. If you look at a seal right. and a giraffe, they don't look terribly the same. Yeah. If you look at the skeletons of them and the bones, you can see that there are definite relationships between them. So it's hearkening to the origin. Yeah, yeah, I'd say so. And that, that kind of bit, that underlying structure and that, that sort of, uh, that commonality of life forms. Uh, okay, and then what about the star on his forehead? Does that signify the third eye uh, being open? I think that's that's an, an, an element of it. Um, I mean, the pentagram again is is one of those really kind of ubiquitous uh, symbols, and so whether or not we think of this in terms of the 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 the, um, the, the, the wounds of Christ, which is where it turns up in Christian iconography, or we think about it in terms of the way it's been used by neo-pagan traditions. Um, it's certainly in terms of its position, I think that it's uh, maybe another way of um, asserting this idea of illumination and the idea of um, uh, the, 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 yeah, the opening of the third eye, the opening of perception onto the world. And it also has the idea of spirit and matter, with the sort of four elements represented by four points, and then the fifth one um, representing spirit, which is where man comes into the equation, particularly at the point when Levi was actually constructing this image. It would have been seen very much in that sense. Oh, why? Why is that? Because of, because of the uh, evolutionary theory. Um, just the sort of Western occult literature at the time was using the pentagram, pentagram very much in that sense. So the pentagram represents uh, the, the microcosm and humanity, and the hexagram typically in the Western occult tradition, particularly at that time, would have been uh, would, would have represented the the, the divine, the. Uh, um, uh, the world of the, the realm of God, essentially. So the the uh, pentagram represents the hexagram. Can you go into that the further? Pentagram is the pentagram is the sign of, of man and of the world and of humans. So, and, so it bridges the gap between the four points of just ordinary matter. This is in their sort of way of thinking. So you've got the square, which is the four elements basic stuff. Um, man has got like a, another dimension that it adds to it and then the hexagon, the he he hexagram, hexagram um, represents God because then that adds even another layer of understanding and perception to the whole business. Well that makes me think of the, uh, the, not the denomination of raised uh, members of the Golden Dawn was five equals six. Right. So does that does that refer to is, is that the same thing? Does that correlate with the pentagram equaling the hexagram? It 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 does certainly in the sense that that um, although uh, Levi's um, engagement with the Kabbalah was was fairly sort of a haphazard because the Golden Dawn hadn't really come along and systematized it in in, in the way that that subsequently happened. Um, the 
the numeric stuff that's associated with the grades on the tree of life and particularly with the process of getting knowledge in conversation with the Holy Guardian Angel and the, the, the initiation of Tifereth, you know, the, 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 the sixth um, sphere, uh, is definitely, definitely connected with that process. And um, you'd said something about on um, the pentagram, uh, the w wounds on Jesus' body correlate mm. to a pentagram. How, how is that? I never heard of that. Yeah, it's, uh, it, it turns up in Christian iconography, and I think from memory it's something like the, the, the wounds on his hands and on, on, uh, on his feet and uh, on his side. Um, and so those are, the, those are the five wounds. Oh, wow, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, okay, and then uh, we'd mentioned earlier about the arms up and down, uh, salve, coagula, or, uh, so do those yeah. mean, those, right. obviously that means out and in, and what else would they mean? Dissolve and recombine um, is, 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 is one way of thinking of them. Yeah, out, is, that, out. is that specifically yeah. sorcery and, and magic, or does it mean something greater than that? Well, they're alchemical terms, so it's to do with the alchemical process, taking a thing and then um, dissolving it into its sort of like um, so that it mixes with other stuff and then the coagulation is when you reform chemically so you have like crystallization occurring that's the sort of chemical process that goes on which is in an alchemical world then symbolizes deeper spiritual processes or thought processes and the mudras that both of the hands are in it's with the two fingers pointing out what does that mean because you see that mudra Throughout Christianity, with Jesus has that mudra, Moses has that mudra. What what does that mean? And with two fingers like that is um, a gesture of blessing, I believe. So that's that's what that one is. If you look, actually look at the right hand quite carefully, it's not doing a mudra with two fingers; it's doing it with three. Oh really? So there's some sort of um, speculation that this is something to do with the sort of the number twenty-three and something to do with the the sort of meanings of that, although that's still very sketchy and I'm not quite sure what we need to draw from that. Um, but certainly the two, the two blessing is, um, is like a blessing. It's also a gesture of silence. Yeah, the, the, the number 23 seems to come up and I've never really uh, understood what it referred to. Obviously 33 has astro, astrologi astronomical, astrological significance. Yeah, I think that the, the, the iconography of 23 um, comes, comes along later um, with that whole kind of discordian uh, current, but, 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 but like any sensible tradition, what that then does is it looks back in history for examples of itself and says, oh, look. The, the, See, I've the, always existed. Right? Yeah, I've always been there. Right, right, yeah. Uh, okay, so now let's go to his feet. You'd, you'd mentioned that he's essentially in a meditation position, or is he? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I kind of like that there, there are obviously lots of modern renderings of Baphomet and there's plenty of examples of, uh, that, that show this figure uh, in the lotus position or meditating in, 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 in some attitude. But there are also those lovely um, like Shiva Nataraj type images of uh, you know, this figure is dancing in some way. Certainly the figure on the um, Gundestrop cauldron which is a ha another horned figure holding serpents which there's, there's an iconographic similarity. Um, one might describe this figure as being uh, a seated figure, but also there's, um, there's evidence again there of a connection with uh, India, which is quite interesting. So it may be, going back to your seal earlier on that you were speaking of, that, that this is a dancing figure. A, a dancing figure? Oh, right, yeah, okay. 
Um, and is he covered up or is, is it covered up uh, with cloth for some reason? Or is that just some sort of 19th century modest, modesty? I think it's a modesty thing. That's is it? That. If you look at the actual Eliphas Levi image, then Baphomet is actually seated on some kind of block, which if you've ever oh. done meditation, is actually quite a sensible position to adopt, because when you just sit on the floor with crossed legs, then your feet go numb. But if you actually sit on a little stool, it makes it much easier. Indeed. Uh, and I think it's a sleeping bag, personally, that he's got <laughs> draped around himself. <laughs> herself. Um, I think that the block that's being seated on, I suspect, is a, is, um, a nod towards the idea of the uh, stone cube which is used in um, uh, you know, various bits of, of iconography. Again, it turns up in, in, in um, the Indian tactic system where the yellow cube is, the, is at the Muladhara chapter of the root of earth. And of course, that's then on top of uh, a sphere, uh, it would seem, or at least a dome, uh, which probably represents the earth. So this is the god of the earth, the deity of the earth, the lord of the earth, which of course is you know, typically one of those titles associated with um, with the devil in Christian iconography. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. It, uh, is he sitting on an ashlar? Is that the same concept, a cube? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I guess it could be cool. It definitely looks like a piece of stone that's been dressed which would sort of be about the way that man shapes the world into what they, what, what we need. So I think it's got sort of echoes of that if you wanted to look deeply into that one. Uh, and then at the centre obviously is a caduceus and, and an arc or, or a circle, right? What, mm -hmm. Now obviously that's a, a suggestion of that he's a hermaphrodite, that Baphomet's a hermaphrodite. Uh, but what is the circle and why is it a caduceus? that represents the phallus? Um, well, the thing that you're describing is a circle. I've always seen it as a rainbow. Oh, right, right. The chemical nature of things. So I'm seeing it as the sort of the rainbow that appears at the particular moment of alchemical stuff when things are really kicking off. So I've always seen it as a rainbow, and that's what that particular bit represents, because it's to do with the way that the um, kejicaeus and the breasts are sort of like near to each other, and the, the joining of those in a sort of sexual and also um, spiritual sense. So there's a, there's a, there's a phase called the, the, the peacock phase in alchemy, which is, um, uh, according to you know, lots of the texts, is, uh, happens at the time that there are many iridescent colours um, in the retort in which you'll try to cook your philosopher's stone. Really? So I think that the suggestion that it's is quite an interesting one. And then, you know, the, the, the caduceus, yes, it's a, it's a stylized phallus. Um, it's, it's interesting about the idea of this figure being um, hermaphrodite, because I think that um, the, the interesting thing about the icon is that it's, it's, it's deeply sexualized, but it's, it's the extreme of male and female sexuality. So it's all the overt forms of, of, of gender. So it's a phallus and breasts, um, rather than being a, a sort of androgyne kind of figure. Mm -hmm. You're right, right. The opposite of a hermaphrodite, sort of, yeah. A eunuch versus a hermaphrodite. And the, the Ketchikaeus is used rather than an actual phallus because otherwise they wouldn't have been able to print it. Right, yeah, yeah, okay. As well as sort of adding another layer of meaning to it. So yeah. it's like, well, I can't use an actual phallus, so therefore we'll use a Ketchikaeus because it's a wand, which obviously is in the right shape. But it also denotes things to do with mercury and communication and also slightly calls to mind the Asclepius sort of Kajikaeus, which has only got one snake around it, so it's a bit different, but it has that sort of idea of healing type stuff. I think it's more to do with Mercury. 
particular case. I think also that the, the, the twin snakes are again uh, recalling once more. So the, the, the image is kind of fractal in the sense that it's it's these this union of opposites which you have with the hands, you have with the moons, you have with the character of the animals that are used. And then the caduceus itself recalls the same thing again in microcosm. So as you go into this kind of fractal design and you have the, the twin serpents of, uh, again, say in Indian cosmology, Idia and Pingala, the, the, the breath of the moon and the breath of the sun, and then the rising of, of Kundalini, which causes itself a serpent up the Shishuma, the, the spinal column. So it's again the idea that through the union of opposites um, comes forth its outpouring of all things. Oh, right, and, that, and hence a phallic uh, drive or thrust. Yeah, absolutely. It's, 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 it's exactly, it's that kind of outpouring, which is also why there's the breast, because this is the outpouring of uh, sexuality. This is the, the, the outpouring of the 10,000 things. And so it comes out explicitly in the same way that a breast emerges from the female body. And it, it, a breast itself is the thing that, that nourishes uh, the next generation. What are the 10,000 things? Uh, the 10,000 things is just an expression that you get in... Um, uh, uh, tantric cosmology, which just means lots of stuff. So, so essentially, you have the the interaction between uh, Shiva and Shakti, the primal masculine, the primal feminine, or the the primal yin and yang, and then from that interaction, uh, Shakti or Kali uh, gives birth to the ten thousand things, gives birth to the whole of the universe. Oh, I see. Okay, so it's it's sort of a big bang. Indeed. And uh, the rainbow. Um, that again uh, makes us think of uh, the scapegoat, right? Uh, you're thinking of the painting. Yeah, exactly. The home, home yeah. and hunt. I think. Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, I guess I'd never, you know, I hadn't made that connection. That's a rather nice one. I like that. Brilliant. Yeah, and the okay. So now we have two crescents. We have a dark, a black, and a white crescent. Now, mm -hmm. why would there be two crescents as opposed to a crescent moon and a sun? Gosh, that's a terribly good question. I don't know. Is the sun being eclipsed? Um, I, I've always seen it as, so you've got the, the white crescent, and that means the bit of the moon that you focus on, which is bright, when it's in that sort of, um, you know, the, the crescent form. And then the other part of it, I've always seen as when the moon is gibbous, but instead of focusing on the larger part of the moon, which is bright, you're looking at the dark part of the moon, which is in shadow. So it's like the negative of because obviously a moon is always a complete circle but when you're looking at the dark crescent you're looking at the bit of the moon that's in shadow rather than the bit that is light as being the important part of it. now would that would that make it so that baphomet himself or itself is uh is this is depicting the sun why or would wouldn't there need to be some sort of balance for a sun and a moon i suppose it could be but then but then this is uh, for, for although this is a representation of um, this confluence of all things, it's nevertheless boarded and, and uh, bounded rather and, and limited by the, uh, the, the, the process of the, of the drawing. And so in this particular instance, it's two moons. And I think, again, recalling the, the, the change of emphasis that Nikki's described, there are other images of Baphomet, including ones that, that um, turn up in the sort of you know, um, early modern period, which show it would seem moons and suns together, and the artist could quite easily have, have decided to, uh, to do that instead. I think that there is perhaps a, a little bit of an emphasis by using the moon in, the, in quite this way of, again, the, 
the dark, the occluded, the sinister, um, the mysterious. Um, so acts that typically take place under the moon. Uh, and what? And the last, the last bit of the picture that we could talk about seems fairly obvious, but it's the wings, and uh, they're dark wings. Do those mean anything specific to you? I mean, I always imagine those are the wings of an eagle. Obviously, there are lots of contemporary representations that show a bat um, uh, um, in that sort of you know metal, heavy metal iconography kind of way. Um, it's also to do with the idea of Satan being a fallen angel, obviously, because it's feathered wings. Right, right, right. Okay, okay. So that is a satanic well, reference, perhaps. I would guess so. Yeah, because yeah. that's straight away comes up for me because they're black as well or, or certainly dark which could be just an artistic thing so that they show up better against the white body um, but it would also to me indicate because it is a, a symbolic picture I would say that using dark wings implies the idea of a dark angel fallen angel mm. yeah I'd agree yeah yeah I think that they are they are the wings of an angel okay now in your book the the book of Baphomet you um, go deep into the spiritual aspects of Baphomet. So now that we've described um, and analyzed the, the iconography, what does Baphomet mean to you spiritually? Um, for me, Baphomet is the figure which represents the totality of life on earth at any one moment. So although it, for convenience's sake, I use a sort of a, quite a fixed image in my head, um, in reality, um, then that would be an ever-shifting, ever-changing being as things are born and die. Um, so for me, it that's what she represents, is this idea of a figure with which I can communicate or relate to, which represents everything. Whereas if I try to actually relate to everything just straight off, that would be a bit tricky for my brain to handle. And because I'm a human, I like to see this figure in a human body, in a human sense. So it's easier to, like I say, relate to emotionally and intellectually as well. And I see that as a, like a, a bit like a god form would be probably the best word to describe it, but also a spirit or an archetypal figure or, you know, there's lots of different words that you could use to describe this character. But for me, it's a, a living presence I can relate to and have a relationship with, which I can't do with a more abstract notion. Oh, right, right. So it, it's definitely an idol then in that sense. Um, not so much in a sort of sense that you would use that term because that in in implies worship, and uh -huh. it's, it's not quite like that. It's a god. It's a it's a god form picture that serves a purpose. Yes. That's that's a beautiful concept of a god form, and I it really it really that really nails the image on the head, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's important to be able to have a relationship with things that are alive um, without having to necessarily resort to specific creatures or species or um, biospheres or whatever. It's quite nice to have a thing which you can look at in that way. So it's, it, it, I suppose for, for, for me as well, it's, it's rather like a, um, uh, it's, in a sense, it's uh, like these kind of abstract notions of the Tao or the force or you know whatever you want to call it but it's specifically rooted in the the life force as it manifests on this planet and who knows probably others and it's actually a humanizing thing because this is a human process of using a word you know a half heard bit of Chinese whispers and then a set of um, 
fluxing and flowing iconography in order to get a handle on how can I develop a set of meanings in my own mind that can allow me to uh, develop and explore my relationship with the totality of life force in the universe. Because the, the problem with, apart from the ungainly nature of saying the totality of life force in the universe, um, is that you need a, a kind of a mechanism to explore this. And a lot of what we're interested in is practical and applied uh, magical uh, process. And one of the ways of doing that traditionally has been the magician's approach to what a deity is, which is that it's a, a, a tool or an instrument in order to access or explore aspects of the self and the universe. And so that's what that symbol represents. So does it correlate at all with the tree of life? Have you ever analyzed the two together? Ooh, um, well, because it's a fractal symbol in the way that I alluded to earlier, I would say that you could quite simply make an equivalence and say, say, you know, Baphomet is the tree of life in the sense that it's the symbol that represents and reconciles opposites and shows uh, a series of outpourings into the universe, which is kind of what the, you know, the Western esoteric Kabbalah is, is, is really all about. I mean, obviously, you could go into that fractal and say, "Oh, well, actually, it's you know, part it's the uh, it's the path of of, of Atu fifteen, and so it's the, the the devil in the tarot trumps." Or you could um, you know tease that apart further and say, in one sense, it represents the the sphere of Hod because it's got mercurial iconography and it represents the intelligent aspect of making sense of the universe. Because you know, there's a lot of different ways you could cut a particular bit of ontological cake. It's a bit of a um, Procrustean kind of thing to do. I think you'd be slightly stretching both models to do that. And I think eventually you'd end up in a sort of theosophical kind of situation where you were just trying to map one thing onto another for the sake of it, to a degree. But nevertheless, this image that we are discussing um, is can be seen as a sort of roadmap for magicians of the universe. I'm not sure that the image can be said to, to be that. I, can, I would say that the, the narrative that includes various images might be that, which is what we wrote the book about, which was our own experience of exploring that, um, that collection of ideas associated with Baphomet. And so Levi's image, um, you know, the, 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 the way that it's used within the um, system of Thelema, these are all um, signposts uh, along this path, along this particular narrative, which, which we followed as, as two magicians and, and, and you know, working with other people that we recount in the book. So it's not that the image itself is this universal kind of code, but it's the narrative that includes these images that's the, the thing that interests me. Now, are there any other... Uh uh, significant or famous depictions of Baphomet that vary uh, from this one of by Levy. Um, well, there's there's the uh, sigil of Baphomet, as it gets called, which is the um, the, the inverted so-called pentagram with a goat's head uh, within it, which gets used quite a lot. And that's obviously you know adopted by people like. Um, uh, Anton Bay and the, the Church of Satan. Yeah, um, is that is that the goat of Mendes that you're referring to? Well, the, it, Levi refers to his image as the, as, as the goat of Mendes, okay. and, and 
Dope Mendes is is um, again a really quite a nice little thing because it's 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 um, uh, from uh, a Greek historian writing about ancient Egypt and and almost certainly getting the apart from the the identity of the uh, animal wrong. So so the the, the um, um, there were uh, sacred rams in, in in Egypt, but they weren't as far in any significant way sacred goats. So again, it's this kind of quite interesting process where. Um, Part of Baphomet is this story of the half-heard and the misheard and the misunderstood, and that's that's part of the kind of the delight for me of this character. There is another um, quite famous image of what's called Baphomet, and it's got like a sort of cockerel's head and four legs. It looks quite different to the one that we're more familiar with. Um, I can't recall it in enough detail to comment on it, but you, you know the one I mean. Yeah, it's it's, yeah, it's, it's sort it's, of like a little chimeric character. Yeah, it's used in uh, Crowley uses it his his uh, his, his seal um, when he takes on the name uh, Baphomet. There's also um, certainly in again Crowley's work. There's the the image of uh, a, um, a two-headed eagle, which again links right into that kind of Masonic symbolism, which uh, which is associated with Baphomet. Uh, and okay, so this the seal you were referring to before that was used by the Church of Satan. What's the history of that? It's, it's really rather lovely. There, there's a book, um, I forget its exact name, something like Pictorial History of the Occult. Um, and uh, it was re re uh, released, um, I think, originally in France. And the volume comes, the hardback comes with a really rather nondescript dust jacket. But the hardback has the image of uh, a pentagram with this uh, two point upmost. Uh, uh, version with goat's head in it, and that was deliberately left around in photo shoots that Anton LaVey was doing for the Church of Satan, essentially to sort of promote, you know, what he was getting up to, um, and became very much kind of linked with uh, the symbol of, of uh, with the art, known as the, uh, the sigil of Baphomet, became linked with the Church of Satan and uh, that particular esoteric group. Oh, okay. Okay, now, um, one of the chapters in your book is entitled The Magical Conspiracy. What does that refer to? I think that refers to, uh, if I remember the chapter correctly, uh, it refers to the idea of um, a whole series of different things. There's this notion of the, you know, the Illuminati and the, the, uh, the Freemasonry uh, you know, conspiracy and the one world government and all those sorts of things. Yeah. And to some extent in that chapter what we're doing is we're playing with that, that set of, of pieces of iconography. It's not something that particularly interests me. I'm not a, a great um, uh, uh, either proponent or supporter of uh, um, some of the more elaborate conspiracy theories because I think that most of human experience is a cock-up rather than a conspiracy. Oh, really? How's that? Can you, can you do a little well, aside on that? <laughs> no, I, I think that, that, that uh, uh, most human, most, most, most uh, um, human process uh, happens through you know, accident, experiment. It's an emergent, know, it's an emergent uh, phenomenon rather than something that's directed by a shadowy cabal of people. That sounds... But yeah, with, yeah. With the, within the book, we do trace this story of um, what uh, we, we kind of call the, 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 the Gnostic approach, the idea of uh, looking at uh, nature itself. And we, we talk about the emergence of the discourse of science as being part of this uh, process, which originally was kind of conspiratorial. So you have organizations like the, 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 um, uh, you know, the, uh, the Invisible College, and you have then, which then becomes things like the Royal Society, um, 
and the, 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 that sort of story. And so the chapter in the book is kind of playing with that and playing with some of the more kind of outlandish ideas about you know, what this conspiracy might be. And what, what did you come to any conclusions or any uh, significant postulations? Um, it's, it's more to do with the actual playing with it than the conclusion that you reach from it to an yeah. extent. So, no, this is, is the quick answer to that. Um, <laughs> All right, yeah. Well, it's, it's kind of fun to sort of like look at it and see how you can make evidence fit to what it is that you're trying to prove and trace your lineage back further than it possibly might exist. If, 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 you know, for, for example, there's a, there's a, a lovely diagram which is in um, a, a, a book called Liber Null by, by Pete Carroll, who, of course, you know, was, was one of the founding figures of chaos magic and Baphomet's close associated with chaos, chaos magic as a style. And this particular diagram in the book uh, has this uh, uh, box with the name of his magical organization, the, the IOT, the Illuminati Thanateros in it, and it has then radiant lines going back in history, touching basically all of the cool groups that you might want to be associated with, or all of the kind of cool stuff. And this is, this is the kind of, the, the, to some extent, what the conspiracy thing was sort of playing with, is the idea that we can go through, for example, with the life of Levi's image of Baphomet, and then retrospectively we can say, hey, look, he's doing the number 23. That must be significant. Mm -hmm. So it's that ability of human beings to kind of connect things up that we were kind of exploring there. Oh, sorry. Speaking, speaking on that, did you ever find any references to, um, to Newton, Isaac Newton, by any chance? Um, not specifically to Baphomet, but he was one of the people that were very, was very involved with the Royal Society after it had been set up. Um, he was the president of it for over 20 years and was very influential on the direction that science as an emergent um, way of investigating the world appeared and was very instrumental in a lot of the whole putting numbers and quantities at the foremost thing because he was a bit obsessed with numbers. He's probably a bit autistic looking at it from sort of today's terminology. <laughs> he was very, very obsessed with numbers and counting things and making that the language of God that you were trying to discover the law of numbers to do with everything in nature and the world and physics and stuff. Um, so although he wasn't directly linked to Baphomet, he was certainly linked with a lot of the things that were around these, this idea of secret societies, um, which science originally started off as a project to discover the, 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 the way that God had written secret sort of codes and stuff into ordinary reality, and that the only way that you could discover these, the true um, significance of God was to look at reality rather than looking at writing about God. Um, and so from that point of view, Isaac Newton has a role to play in the whole story. Uh, okay, and uh, you mentioned chaos magic. Can you explain to me what that is? I don't really know too much about that. Um, so chaos magic is a bit of a sort of, it's, it's using the scientific method of um, investigation within the, the occult experimental changing the world idea. So it's to do with evaluating techniques and methods and seeing which ones actually produce useful effects in very shorthand terms. That would be how I would sum it up. So the actual effect of that is that people that call themselves chaos magicians tend to adopt certain behaviours or paradigms or ways of doing ritual or other practices. Um, but they consciously decide to do so rather than falling into them. Um, so they would, we would um, decide on a particular um, sort of path of study 
um, and then use that for a while and engage with it, possibly sometimes for a lifetime um, or for maybe 10, 20 years or sometimes only for a few days or a few months. And then by learning lots of different ways of using paradigms, whether it's Hindu iconography or um, Western occult stuff or soap operas or whatever it is that you happen to go for, then you can see the underlying patterns beneath those which might be similar or might be useful. Um, but it's not just about discovering the truth, it's about seeing the pragma pragmatism of using certain things in certain situations, which is where it's very different to something like Theosophy, which was doing lots of this comparative studies type stuff to try and uncover the true meaning underneath it, whereas Chaos Magic isn't concerned with that. It's much more concerned with what is useful to my current situation that I can use. Now, is that the same thing as applying order to chaos? Well, the, the, the use of the phrase chaos in chaos magic um, has its own kind of uh, history. And uh, part of the reason the word chaos is used is because chaos sounds kind of cool and exciting. Um, and so it's, uh, but it also points towards this idea that Nikki was talking about, about it being uh, a multiplicity uh, of different approaches. But again, rather like the, the thing of chaos, chaos mathematics and nonlinear dynamics, it points to the idea that uh, within each of these different approaches, within each of the different sort of um, esoteric ways of engaging with the world or religious um, traditions or uh, psychological um, uh, frames of reference, that within each of those there is contained within that many, many other subsequent possibilities. So you can, as a, as a chaos magician, um, really uh, uh, take it as, as acceptable and, and in, uh, indeed really important to engage with a number of different styles and a number of different approaches to uncovering uh, who you are, what your relationship with the universe is, and uh, discovering methods of effecting change in, in, uh, in those domains. And, that, and you also have a chapter called Embrace the Chaos, so that sounds similar to what you're describing. Yeah, um, I think it's, uh, it, you know, a lot of the, 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 the Book of Baphomet, it, it obviously has a particular set of techniques that we used over the, co the course of the time kind of writing that. Um, uh, some, of, you know, some of which are recorded in the book, some of which are, are just things that are kind of personal to us. And one of the things that I kind of like and that I really enjoy about uh, living in the time that I do, having the resources that, that are available to me, is that... Uh, I can learn from many, many different sources, and I can see the world in, through many, many different sets of eyes. Um, and and uh, so embracing the chaos is certainly something I would recommend. There's also the sense of chaos, and, and then, again, going back to the sort of alchemical original mythology of um, the Greek world, where chaos is everything, and it's not... Um, everything mixed up in a sort of what we would use the word chaotic to mean now chaos just means everything before it was differentiated into hot and cold solid and liquid and the different states that things exist in now so it's much more to do with the primordial matter about from which everything has now differentiated itself so in that sense chaos means all right so it's not at all negative no 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 not at all and um, what about the uh, the satanic orgy shocker? What, what's that about? <laughs> that's that's a fantastic story. That's a fantastic <laughs> story. It's one of my favourites. So it's it's basically a tale about this guy um, 
who went by the pen name of Leo Taxil, and how over the course of many years he created uh, a huge practical joke in France where he had a public conversion, to, he, was a, he was a sort of small-time pornographer and um, journalist, and he had a public conversion to Catholicism and um, uh, you know, wrote books of devotional poetry and things and, and had an audience with the Pope and so forth, uh, and also managed to stir up a huge amount of hatred against the Freemasons in France by alleging that they were involved in you know, terrifying satanic orgies and, 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 all the, and, and uh, they were trying to create a one-world government and so forth. It was a good way of selling books. It was a brilliant way of selling books. You know, he was very, very successful. Uh, and then essentially revealed to a packed press conference that it was all a tissue of lies and that everyone had been duped and that the French um, uh, um, religious establishment were prepared to believe any bunch of nonsense with no evidence behind it. However outrageous it was. However outrageous, absolutely. And that you know, these people really should take a look, long, hard, critical look at themselves. Uh, and, you know, he had to leave the conference under a police escort. Mm. Um, now, because we're very cross. Oh, yeah. Uh, now, you referred to Baphomet as a hermaphrodite, and I actually personally believe that all um, deities are essentially um, aspects of the sacred hermaphrodite, which I term the sacred hermaphrodite, and that Shiva's the most obvious... Uh, sort of incarnation or depiction of the sacred hermaphrodite. But what other aspects or what have you read about Baphomet's hermaphroditism per se? I think one of the really interesting things that I've read about it recently is um, in a collection of essays and poetry by someone called Ruth Adams, uh, which is uh, a devotional to Baphomet called uh, A Gift of Maggots. And that's lots and lots of very, very interesting writing by people from kind of, you know, uh, LGBT perspectives looking at the idea of Baphomet as deity of, of freaks, uh, of, the, of the excluded, of the, the kind of transgendered. Um, there's obviously in terms of the, the sort of the underworld iconography of this thing, there is this, this deeply kind of sexualized element and there's also this idea of the fluidity of gender roles that's very, very explicit within uh, both Levi's image and certainly if you, you, know, if you just have, have a, little, a little look at kind of, you know, a Google image search, lots of the contemporary images as well. So I think that there's, that, you know, that particular book I'd recommend, I think that's, that's, that's got some really, really interesting stuff in it and it's very much coming from those sorts of perspectives. Mm, and certainly a lot of the more recent images of Baphomet, as I was saying earlier, Represent, it, uh, represent her as a woman with the sort of phallic symbol attached rather than as a god. It's much more a goddess figure. It seems to be the direction that things are going in. That's, that's something that I would personally see. Um, and referring in our book to Baphomet, we've always used the, the sort of the gender-inclusive pronoun of her and she rather than differentiating it between the two different things. And that's been quite important well, I'd, I'd have to I'd have to disagree with that. I'd say that that kind of throws it off balance, and I think that it is a celebration of um, both sexes uh, united. Yeah, I think it's a sort of a redressing of the balance slightly because it's in the same way that feminism, to begin with, had to become more orientated towards the the strengths of women, and at some at a lot of the points early on in the trajectory there, feminism sort of lost sight of the good points of the male, 
which are now sort of reappearing again. And I think with Baphomet, it's a similar kind of process where some of the feminine stuff is being accentuated because it's been repressed for so many years. The deity that's female is not something in the West that we're familiar with at all. So it's slightly being emphasized to the exclusion of the male, but I'm sure it will sort of swing back again into a more equal balance about the thing, which is certainly how I would see the, the, that figure. Um, and one, one thing I've noticed, I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but on the pound notes in the UK, um, the queen has a crown on, right? And at the front of the crown, uh, the jewels at the very top and front of her crown seem to form an image which is distinctly uh, Baphometic, or it looks like Baphomet. That sounds really cool. I yeah, should look you should really take a look. I'm serious. <laughs> I noticed that a few years ago. Nikki and Julian, would you like to mention your blog for us and the name of the book and where we can find out more information about it? Um, yes, our blog is called The Blog of Baphomet, and it's easily found if you type it into Google. And uh, you'll find information there about the book, which is called The Book of Baphomet. We're trying to keep things simple here, so it's easy to find us. And yeah, the blog has usually two or three blog posts per week that go up about all sorts of different topics, um, which are very approachable with a little bit of sense of humour there, but also some quite nice bits of um, philosophical meanderings and also tales of personal magical experience as well. Excellent. Okay, so it's the book of Baphomet and the blog of Baphomet.com. So that's the, the blog of Baphomet.com. And Baphomet is B A. P-H-O-M-E-T, the blog of bafflement.com. That's exactly it. And there's, there's information about um, how to buy the book uh, via, via the site. And as Nikki's saying, there are quite a lot of articles being, being posted, uh, a lot of stuff about kind of contemporary chaos magic practice, a lot of stuff about mindfulness practice and its relationship with uh, the Western magical tradition. And uh, yeah, it's an interesting read. And it's not just us that write it, there are also other people that we know that write for it too. So it's starting to grow into quite a collection of different people, which is rather nice. It's a group blog rather than individual. Thank you for listening to The Great Work Radio. The Great Work Radio and blog are features of Jesse War's website and can be accessed at jessiewar.com. That's J-E-S-S-E-W-A-U-G-H.com. We look forward to comments submitted to the blog and hope you enjoyed today's program. To download the Great Work Radio program files, just search for the name Jesse War in the iTunes Store.